All right, if we can start making our way to our seats. If you got your Bible, go ahead and turn to the book of Malachi. We're going to continue on in our, our Lenten study of Malachi. And we're going to be looking at verses 1, 6, down through about 2, 7, I think. Is that what it says on your bulletin? 2, 10. What I'm going to do is, since it's sort of a long section, I'm going to, we're not going to read it up front. We'll just read it as we go. Uh, I'm going to kind of bounce around to a couple different places in the passage. Um, and so we're not going to go through it quite sequentially. Um, but we'll read it as we, as we work through the text. So let me pray for us and we'll get started. Father God, we thank you again for this time. We thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you that, um, God, we can, uh, that we do not trust in, in, uh, the whims of man, um, that we do not trust in, um, God, a source, um, or a teaching that, that shifts and changes, um, based on, on the cultural tides and winds. Um, but God, we look to your word. Um, and, and we have this objective source that we can learn about you, um, God, that we can see the way you have, um, worked and revealed yourself throughout the history of the world. Um, God, how you have revealed to us our brokenness and our sin. Um, God, how you have shown us the remedy, uh, for that, which is, um, the good news of the coming of your son, Jesus Christ for our salvation. Father, we ask that you would work through your word today um, in a difficult text, in, in a passage of scripture that is, that is stark and challenging, um, but that you would use it to um, convict us and to um, conform us to the image of your son. Uh, we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're going to jump right into the text, but, but here's the deal. So obviously, man, these these Old Testament prophets, um, they can be heavy. This is a heavy passage, okay? Um, there's some heaviness to it, right? Because they this is a passage uh, of judgment. Now, again, and we'll kind of clarify this as we go through. Don't, when you hear judgment, I don't want you to necessarily think in terms of condemnation, okay? Judgment is 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 God coming in and saying, um, "I am, I am." I'm weighing your deeds in light of the standard that I've set before you and, and they are found wanting. Okay. So he is judging. He is bringing a judgment on our actions, but that is not the same thing as condemning somebody. Okay. 
Um, God loves his people and he's working in his people and he is going to bring discipline into their lives, but he's not bringing condemnation into their lives. Okay. But nevertheless, this is a passage of judgment. Okay. And so judgment is difficult. Anytime God convicts us and shows us that the way we are living is wrong and destructive and hurtful, um, it, that's hard for us to, to deal with. And so again, obviously he is dealing with the Israelite people in the time just after the return from exile. Um, but I think he is speaking to all people at all times as well, um, because we are all the same kind of people. We're all sinners just like they were. Um, and, and as the people of God, God is speaking to us in this context, okay? And so we're just going to jump in. Remember last week we talked about this idea um, of these different uh, Malachi is broken up into disputations. That's one way of, of going through the book. There are about six disputations where essentially God says, here's the thing. And Israel comes back and says, yeah, but, and then God says, no clarification, right? Here's, here's the deal, right? The first one we saw was God expressing his love for us. And that's key. We'll touch on that again today. But this one, God is, is bringing an accusation against his people. All right. So it starts off in verse six and it says, as uh, a son honors his father and a servant, his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. All right. So, so obviously he's starting off with this sort of general idea that's probably pretty clear to us. We all understand that there are, um, people in, in certain areas of our lives that, that sit in authority over us that we owe dignity and respect to. Um, that would, they, that would include, um, godly parents, um, or parents in general. Um, it would include, um, bosses and masters and authorities and, and, and people in, in the government and things like that. Um, we understand that, right? And so he says, you owe honor to all these people, and you're supposed to biblically show honor to these people. And yet, I am a father, God says, I am a master, and yet you don't show me the requisite honor that is due to me. One of those overarching things that we're going to see in Malachi is that Israel is not rendering to God what God is worthy of. All right. He is worthy of honor. He is worried of worship. He is worry, uh, worthy of these, these offerings that we could bring to him. And yet Israel is not, is not doing that. Okay. And notice the wording there, the, the, the highlight there, particularly God has a bone to pick with the priests in this passage. Now, the, the deal is, is, is he's going to talk both to the people in general and to the priests in specific throughout the text. But he has a special thing to say to the priests in this passage. And so there in, in, in towards the end of uh, verse six, he says, Oh, priests who despise my name. The priests are singled out twice in this passage. And the reason is, is obvious because they have a very specific calling. They bear a particular responsibility, even above that of the normal people. Malachi gives us a summary of what the ideal Levitical priesthood would look like just a little bit further down in the passage. Look at verse uh, chapter 2, verse 5. Okay, So he kind of gives this 
picture of, uh, and again, it's idealized, I think, because when we look back through the Old Testament, it's hard to find a time when this would be exactly how the Levites seem to have acted. But he says, my covenant with him, that is Levi and the Levites, was one of life and peace. I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness. He turned many from their iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. Okay, so that's sort of this idealized picture of what it means to be a priest. And and Malachi is saying, or God is saying through Malachi, you're not doing that. All right, now, men in the congregation, listen, listen to me for a second. That priesthood that he is describing in this passage, first off, bears a significant resemblance to the calling of elders in the local church, okay? We could look at that 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 description of the priesthood and talk about um, uh, true instruction coming from his mouth, that many are led away from their iniquity or whatever. These are the these are aspects of the role of of the elder, okay? And so when we look to the Bible, we we realize very quickly, man, anytime you are in leadership or authority within the context of the church, there is a a added responsibility that comes onto your life at that point. Um, you are called to be someone who presents God as worthy to the congregation, to the broader world. Somebody who leads and instructs people in both the truth and in a reverent fear of God. That's a, that's that's part of the qualification, you'd say. Um, and again, that responsibility means that you will be judged more strictly, or at least that's what James chapter three tells us. All right. So th- that, that priesthood role is, is pictured in the New Testament in a sense. They're, they're not, they're not one to one correlations, but in a sense in the role of elder. But I would tell you that it goes another step past that into the role of father, uh, and uh, within your family. Okay. And so we've been talking in our small group, we've been reading through a little book about family worship, and we've been talking about one of the ideas that has come out of that that book um, is the idea that functionally your family is a little church, okay? Your family is a is a small congregation, and, and in a sense, the, the father, the husband is the elder of that church, and in a sense, the, the, the mother would be kind of like a deacon of that church. And then your children are the, 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 the flock, right? The congregation of that church. And so what I would say to you is this, is that not only is that added responsibility that God is talking about for the priesthood, not only does it apply to eldership in the church, but it applies to the role of husband and father within the family, okay? There's an added responsibility to all of those. And so the priests are called out specifically because they're not living up to that. But look what they say. When God makes this statement, they come back, right? They say, but you say, how have we despised your name? What do you mean we've despised your name, God? That sounds awful harsh, right? That we have despised your name. What have we done to despise your name? 
Here's something interesting that I've, I've noticed when I have talked to people, particularly when I'm sharing the faith with them or trying to talk to them about what the Bible teaches or something like that. When we use the words that the Bible uses for sin and rebellion and things like that, I mean, I can't count the number of times that the person I'm talking to will come back and say, whoa, 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 you're overblowing these things. You know, you're using words like defiance and despising and and hatred of God and rebellion. Man, it's not that big a deal, okay? Like the way I'm living my life is none of those things. I'm not, I don't hate God, you know, I'm just, but here's the deal. The Bible describes the life of a sinner in those ways, okay? And so we have the situation here where God is saying, the way you are acting, you are despising me. And the priests come back and say, whoa, 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 we're not despising you. It's not that big. What we're, what's going on here is not big. How are we despising? It's a really strong word, God, for what we're doing. But then God describes it. He says, okay, well, let me tell you how you're despising me. Verse seven, he says, by offering polluted food upon my altar. Okay, that's how you're despising me. And then the priests come back again. Well, how have we polluted? the food that is offered on your altar by saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifices, that not evil. When you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Okay. So if you're, if you're familiar with the old Testament, you probably know that when you brought a sacrifice to God, it was supposed to be a healthy uh, 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 sacrifice free of defect right? If you brought a sheep or a goat, um, you weren't supposed to bring something defective, right? Some animal that was lame or blind or had been attacked by an animal or something that was in some way was broken that basically you didn't want anyway, okay? You couldn't do that. The sacrifice was not an opportunity to offload defective livestock or whatever. Instead, you were supposed to give this animal that was without spot or blemish, rendering the best that you have to God in the sacrifice. Now notice, obviously, this is the point in which we realize he's not just talking to the priests. He's talking to the people as well. Because whereas the priests are accepting these sacrifices, and, and it seems to be from the passage that they're even endorsing that that situation in some ways, the people are taking advantage of it. The people are going, oh, well, good. If the priests say it's no big deal to bring defective animals, then I'm going to bring my defective animals instead of bringing the good stuff, which I'm going to keep for myself. And God makes it very straightforward what the deal is here. He says this, that this middle half of, of, or the second half of verse eight, he says, how about this, guys? Try presenting that defective sacrifice to your governor. Will he accept it and show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now you entreat the favor of the Lord that he may be gracious to you with such a gift from your hand. Will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Okay. And so he makes this very obvious observation. He says, you ask for my favor but then you show up with these despicable offerings that go against the express things that I've told you to do. Again, remember the larger context. Israel's problem in this era is that they are living in doubt of, of God. They're doubting God's goodness, his provision, his justice, because God is not blessing them the way that they thought they were going to be blessed when they came back from, from the Babylonian exile. 
But God's saying, man, why would you expect blessing and approval when you show such disregard for me when it comes to the sacrifices? You wouldn't treat your governor that way. You wouldn't treat your boss that way. You wouldn't treat your captain that way. You wouldn't treat anybody that you respected in this way, and yet you treat me, the Lord of all the universe, the Lord of hosts, this way. Or at the very least, if you did treat any of those people that way, you wouldn't expect them to like give you any kind of preferential treatment, right? You wouldn't expect them to think any uh, more highly of you or do anything beneficial for you if you had just sort of dialed it in and given the least possible easy garbage sacrifice. And guys, here, listen to this. So this is, this is, it, it gets a little heavy right here. Okay. It gets real for the next couple of verses, progressively real. Um, God doesn't often talk the way he's about to talk. Um, or maybe we just don't zoom in on those passages very often. But again, it's key to remember that he is talking to his people. He is not talking to somebody who he is condemning. He is talking to someone whom he is disciplining. We never think that, um, we can't ever think of sin lightly, even, even in our salvation, right? It's easy for us to sit back and sort of say, oh, well, Jesus has saved us. He's washed all my sins away, uh, past, present, and future, which means they're not that big a deal anymore somehow. And the reality is, is no. God takes sin very seriously. And his language in this passage is going to demonstrate that. And again, the, the language is, is, is uncommon. We'll say that. All right. So first he says this. He says, Oh, that there were among you. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. Okay. So here's the first thing he says. He says, you might as well, you'd be better off not doing church. Okay. You'd be better off not doing the sacrifices. You'd be better off just shutting the temple doors and ending this thing than to bring me these defiled sacrifices. Okay. That's a heavy thing to say, right? Um, if God showed up one day at church and you were about to walk in and God says, you know what? Don't bother. Just go home. You'd be better off. Okay. That would be a hard thing to hear, right? Those are heavy words for us. But God says, man, I wish somebody had that kind of zeal. Because that's another problem with Israel at this point. Man, nobody gives a rip about anything. There's not enough gumption to do any of this stuff, good or bad. Like there is just this lukeness among them. And he says, I wish somebody had the zeal to come in and say, we're not doing this anymore, guys. We're shutting the doors on this thing because we are not going to continue to dishonor the Lord like this. But it gets worse. Verse 14. Actually, scoot down a little bit, right? So I'm jumping. We were in 10, jump down to 14. He says, cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and bows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. And now, O priest, this is my command. My command is for you. If you will not listen... 
If you will not take to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Okay. So again, a heavy reality is, is here's what's going on and what we see. The Israelites are saying, where's God at? He's not blessing us. That must mean that he's not here anymore or something. Or he's not a just God or something like that. And God comes back and says, no, the reason why you're not being blessed is because you are defiling my sacrifices and are now under a curse. Okay. Those offerings that you're making to me are not benefiting you in any way. They're not an obedience. They are, they are bringing a curse upon you because you're doing them in a defiled way. Your offerings are cursed. You are cursed. The people who are bringing them are cursed. The guy who says, I'm going to bring this, this broken animal, uh, even though I've got better stuff at home, he's cursed. His sacrifice is cursed. The whole thing's cursed. Cursed is the man who can give what is right to God, but doesn't. Does that make sense? Cursed is the priest who would accept a man giving what is not up to par. Again, the lackluster situation of the Israelites is actually caused by the curse that is upon them because of their own actions. Okay. But then here's the thing, guys, it gets worse. In fact, we go off the charts worse right here. Okay. In language that I am going to be explicit with, but man, I'm not trying to be like sensational. I'm just trying to show what it says. Verse three, chapter two, verse three, behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. All right, here's what that means. It means if you're going to offer crap on my altar, then I'm going to rub that crap in your face and I'm going to flush you away with it. Okay? Now, again, you go, is this the same Bible? But like, it, it's one of those things that when you hear it, you go, if someone told you that and you had never read it and they said, you know, there's that place in the Bible where God says, he will smear crap in your face and flush you away with it, you would go, that's not, that doesn't sound like the Bible. It sounds, I don't know where you're getting that from, but that doesn't sound like something God would say. And yet that is the the stark seriousness of this passage, right? The, uh, man, it's, there's an explicitness to it, right? If, if, um, if the God you're familiar with is friendly old Grandpa Santa Claus God, you know, who is just, man, he's just happy that you're here and show him any kind of attention. This isn't him, okay? This is not that God. God isn't interested in being humored. He's not interested in being patronized. In fact, verse 11 says, from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place where incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Again, God says, I am worthy of better than this. I am worthy of fame. I am worthy of honor. I am worthy. 
of the best that you have. And we should not ignore the fact that our actions, particularly as we serve and worship him, they either illustrate the worthiness of God or they speak against it. Okay, let me say that again. Our actions, the way we live our lives, particularly in the context of worship, in the context of church, they either illustrate how worthy God is of these things or they speak against his worthiness. That's what's going on in Israel. God's looking around and saying, if anybody out in the world were to look in and see how you were treating me, they would think I was some second-rate God that didn't deserve anything. And when I or anybody else shows inordinate passion and dedication to other things, and I, and I shortchange God in the process, when I give the best of myself to everything else in my life, I give the best of myself to work. I give the best of myself to my friends. I give the best of myself to family or hobbies or interests or whatever, making money or whatever. When I give the best of myself everywhere else and give God the leftovers, something's amiss. Something is wrong. And that's what's going on here. God's not interested in our callous, presumptuous kind of offerings. To him, okay. And there's something cool that's going on in this passage too, because there's an there's an fancy word eschatological side to that last passage we read too. There's a picture that is looking to the end times, looking to the church age. Even notice what he says in it, because because when we read that verse 11, from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, right? Not just in Israel, everywhere, in every place, incense will be offered to my name. And a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. It's hard for us to think that there was ever a time in which that that couldn't have been the case at this time, right? There's the world is pagan at this point. There's not people all over the world doing what what God is talking about. He's got to be looking to a future state when the rest of the world, the nations, right? Um, it's interesting that word there, that word nations is the word goim which means the nations, but it's also the word that ends up getting translated Gentiles in the New Testament. It means all the peoples of the world who aren't the Jews, right? He says there's going to come a time where all of these people are believing in me too and giving me honor and offering incense and, and a pure offering that my name will be great among all the nations of the world, right? And in a sense, at a level, that is already dawned. It is dawned in the coming of Christ. Particularly the fact that right now, I mean, pretty much, not specifically every single people group, we know that, but in general, um, the fame of God has spread throughout the entire world, that it has spread into um, hundreds of different cultures and, and ethnicities and, and people groups. And right now, all over the world on the Lord's Day, man, there are people worshiping and doing exactly what God has said. So the Israelites are treating God like a bad marriage. They're treating God like they're basically saying, you know what? I've given up on this relationship, but I know that we're never, you're never going to leave me, right? God, so we can treat you. You're not going to, you're not going to go anywhere. So we can treat you however we want to treat you. But God says the whole world is mine and I will receive glory. I'm worthy of glory. Every nation will come and honor me eventually. If you won't, 
which again connects us back to the passage we talked about last week in Romans chapter 11 about the tree of the, the olive tree of God, right? Where the Israelites are being pruned out because of their unbelief and the, the goyim, the nations, the Gentiles are being grafted in because they have trusted in Jesus Christ. So God is asking the Israelites to treat him again with the, the respect that he deserves and offer sacrifices in keeping with that honor. All right. But then again, look at their response again, man. It's, it's, it is a perfect picture. Verse 12, it says, but you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruits, that is its food made to be despised. Okay. So he's saying again, you're this, you're defiling the altar and verse 13, what do they say? But you say, ah, what a weariness this all is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Right, man, again, it's, a, it's, this, it's this perfect picture because I feel like it, it speaks so truly to life. Ah, it's such a weariness. God, you're asking for my best all the time. Like I have to bring what is best to you and offer it up to you. Ah, oh, doesn't that seem like a workspace kind of righteousness, guys? Doesn't it seem like a God who's just like always want, you can never satisfy. Like he just always wants more, right? You give a little bit and he's just going to want more after that. Oh, it's so weary, wearying. You know what I like? I want a God who like is so gracious that he doesn't even care, right? That he'll just take anything from us because that's how good and gracious God he is. And I think he's saying, that is not the kind of God that I am. I desire your best. I demand your best. God is not hard to please. All right? The opposite, I think. Um, God is, is, he loves his children. I don't think he's hard to please, but he knows our heart. Right. He knows when we're dialing it in. He knows when our when when we're just giving him something to sort of push him off until until later or something like that. But God says, I won't be humored, not interested in being humored. I'm not going to be the object of your indifference or your laziness or your boredom or your decadence. And that's why it is so important to begin where we began last week, right? Again, this is not God bringing condemnation, I don't think, on the people. He's not saying, I'm done with you and I'm moving on. He's saying, I love you and I want you and something different should be the case. This is not the way you should be treating me as the sovereign electing Choosing God, who out of all the people of the world, chose you. I'm not quitting on you. And you don't have to earn my love either. Again, that's not what's going on either. He's not saying, I need more so that, that, that you can earn your place in my relationship, right? We never could. The reality is, is there's only one person who has ever offered a sacrifice that is worthy of God. 
There's only one person who's ever offered a sacrifice that was perfect. Only one who has given God what is most precious, most valuable, what God deserves, and that is Jesus, right? He's the only one who's ever accomplished it. God is not being hard to please, okay? He knows we are incapable of of giving him what is perfect, but he is asking us to give what is best. Jesus gave what is perfect. Hebrews tells us in different places, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And every priest stands daily at service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And then in chapter 9, but as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Okay? Jesus has come in, and Jesus has sacrificed rightly. And he has accomplished that salvation, that, that perfect sacrifice that we never could. And so, again, you might think, as New Testament believers, you might say, man, Ash, you're reading this passage about Old Testament sacrifices. We're past that now. We don't have to worry about Old Testament kind of sacrifice. We don't have to worry about bringing a pure, proper sacrifice to God because Jesus has already done that, right? He's accomplished it. It's final, his ultimate sacrifice of himself. There's no further sacrifice necessary. So, Ash, while this is an interesting sermon about the situation of Israel in the post-exilic period, uh, it doesn't really have anything to do with me because I got Jesus now. But here's something interesting, I think, is when you look up the word sacrifice in like a concordance, you know what you find? Hundreds of references in the Old Testament, as you would probably expect, right? Tons of uses of the word sacrifice in the Old Testament, all right? Then you come to the New Testament, and there's only about 20-something, 22, 23, I'm not sure. It's somewhere around there, low 20s, Okay. Only a few times is the word sacrifice used in the New Testament. And when you start looking at the usage of those words sacrifices, this is what you find. About a quarter of them are referencing the Old Testament sacrifices. Okay? So, cool. About a quarter of them are referencing pagan sacrifices that we shouldn't be a part of. So, those are out. About a Another quarter of them are referencing Jesus as our sacrifice, like we were just talking about in Hebrews. Most of those passages are actually in Hebrews. And so we understand that. But then there are a couple, or five, just loose references in the New Testament that still talk about the fact that we have a sacrifice to give to the Lord. Jesus is our complete sacrifice, but it still uses the language of us offering a sacrifice to the Lord. You want to hear them? So what would that look like? What are we talking about when we talk about if we are living um, like the Israelites in Malachi, if we are offering up defiled, false sacrifices, what would that, nobody's offering up goats anymore, right? We're not doing that. Nobody here has offered up a, a defiled goat, okay? What kind of sacrifices are we talking about? Hebrews 13 says this, Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. 
Okay, so you know what one sacrifice that you're supposed to be offering to God in the New Testament era that is that is not negated by the fact that Jesus Christ has come or something like that. One of them is a sacrifice of praise. Your worship is a kind of sacrifice to God. Okay, so I think what we can do is we can take the principles that we're seeing in Malachi and bring it in to our New Testament worship. And we can say this, we owe God our best when it comes to worship. And if you come to worship and you are not offering your best, then what we probably should be doing is at least being honest and repentant about that, right? So if you can't come and bring your best to God, you better come and bring I'm sorry for not bringing my best to you, God. Okay? We should at least be repentant in it. We shouldn't say, hey, you know what? God can, he gets what he gets and he doesn't pitch a fit. We can't have that attitude when we come, right? The sacrifice that we owe God is a sacrifice of praise, a sacrifice of worship. Okay? That's one usage of it. It's only one place, though. It's, only, it's the only passage that I saw in, in, in looking stuff up that would refer to our praise as a sacrifice in, in the New Testament. Verse 18 of the book of Philippians, chapter 4. I have received full payment and more, Paul says. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to the Lord. Okay, so what are we talking about now? He says there's another kind of sacrifice we see in the New Testament. That is a sacrifice of our material goods. Okay, so you could think about that in terms of a tithe, or you could think about that in terms of special gifts that, that you give in terms of, of uh, charity or ministry or, or, or whatever like that. But the word sacrifice is used of our material giving. Okay, so when we give, that is a kind of sacrifice. And so again, taking the Malachi principles and applying them to a New Testament sacrifice. If we are holding back the best of our material lives and only giving to God what is left over um, or what is subpar or what is whatever, then something's wrong. God is concerned over and over again in the scriptures with us being faithful in our material possessions. That's going to play heavily into one of the disputations in maybe next week. I can't remember if it's next week or the next, the week after that. It's going to play heavily into it because this is one of the main ways that Israel is not being faithful to God. Okay. But then maybe the last one, um, is, is the, the, the one that maybe hits the hardest. And it's a passage that I'm sure you probably already know. In fact, if I, asked you to think of a place in the New Testament that talks about sacrifice, I'll bet this would be many people's passage that they thought of. I appeal to you, brothers, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to the Lord, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, or some translations say your reasonable act of worship. Okay, so what is the sacrifice that we now give to God? It's our lives, right? It is our very bodies, not dying on an altar in a physical way, but dying to self 
in a spiritual way every single day and offering our lives up to God. And again, the principle trends, you bring it from Malachi into the New Testament. If we are saying of my own life, if I'm giving God the seconds, if I'm giving God the leftovers, if I am living in a way that gives the best of myself to everything else in my life and doesn't give the best to God, then I think we can say something's wrong. That is not the worship that God deserves. Okay? Now, on an individual basis, I don't know where you're at, right? You may look to these things and say, no, I think I'm being faithful in those things, right? And, And that doesn't mean you're being perfect, okay? I hope none of us would say we are being perfect in any of these things. Um, at least not honestly, um, but you can say I'm trying to be faithful in them, right? Like I'm not living in rebellion. I'm not living in defiance. I'm not living in laziness. I'm not living in presumption to God in these areas. Um, I'm trying to do what I think is the right thing to do in these, okay? I, I can't say what Malachi is saying, right? Malachi knows the hearts of the people because God is the one speaking in Malachi. So he's saying, this is all y'all's problem. This is your problem. I can't say that. Right. But the Holy Spirit can say it to you. Right. The Holy Spirit can speak to you out of just those three things that we mentioned. A sacrifice of praise, a sacrifice of gifts, a sacrifice of a life dedicated to God and say, are we living in a way that honors God, that gives him the honor that he deserves? Are we giving the best of ourselves to God in those areas or is he getting what's left over? So what I want to do is we're going to go to the Lord in prayer. Um I hope that you'll consider that in, in, cause let's be honest, man, it's not about this passage even. That's, that, that's the whole of the Christian life, right? That should be what we are working on and thinking about and growing in and asking God to move in us on a daily basis to draw us closer to himself, to express our worship and love for him in a more true, uh, and faithful way every single day. So what I want you to do is pray about that and, and we'll go to the Lord in prayer. Um, and, and I will trust that the Holy Spirit will lead you, um, in, in whatever way he sees fit in your lives. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, worthiness. Worthiness is is um, is a theme that when we consider your goodness and your glory, um, God, when we consider your majesty and your love, when we consider your mercy and your grace to us, God, uh, how could you be anything but worthy of everything that we could offer you? God, we give so much of our lives to things that are abjectly not worthy. Things that are unworthy of our time, unworthy of our energy, unworthy of of our effort, unworthy of our love and devotion, God. There are many things in our lives that deserve a certain level of that. And yet, God, if we are living in such a way that we are giving the best to those places, um, then we are holding something back from you that belongs to you, 
that you are worthy of, God, and that you we see in your word you are jealous for. God, help us to acknowledge the places in our lives that we are um, wasting these things. God, whether it is by, um, whether we're doing it out of a sense of, of ignorance, if that's the best word, um, God, we're doing it accidentally because we are not diligent. Or God, if we were willfully choosing our own lives and own pleasure and, and, and own, um, other own areas of life, and we are placing them above you and your glory. God, help us to acknowledge those places. Help us to turn from that and offer a sacrifice to you that is in keeping with the dignity and worth uh, that, that you possess. We thank you, God. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand and sing the closing song.
Amen. So that song makes a good balance to what we're talking about, right? Because it says, don't misunderstand what we're talking about when we're talking about bringing our best to to God. We're not saying that's how you get saved, right? We're not saying that, oh, unless you have already done this, God doesn't want you and God isn't interested in you. That's not what we're talking about. Okay. Um, if, if, if this is a little simplistic to say it this way, but that song right there is a justification song, right? Um, and we are talking, this was a sanctification sermon. Okay. Now it's not that simple. They're, they, they are joined together and those two things can't be separated. But, but one of them is saying, you are my people and this is how I want you to live. And the one last week was saying, I chose you not based on how you were living, right? Not because you had done it all right. I chose you and saved you because I love you, because you were the recipients of my grace and mercy, okay? We see that more fully in Jesus Christ, obviously. Um, but those are two sides to this, right? We are talking about how we live as those who have already been blood-bought followers of Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, well, cool. Um, good to see you. Glad you're here, man. Maybe it'll be spring this week. We'll see. Um, uh, maybe not. Um, uh, but hope you have a good week and, um, we'll see you next week as we continue through Malachi. Hear this benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you, make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Turn his face towards you and give you peace. We'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.